The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Welcome on this lovely, sunny Welsh uh, evening, Saturday evening, to this debate on the end or after the end of truth. And we have a very distinguished panel to debate this issue here tonight. Uh, on my right-hand side, we have Hilary Lawson, uh, well-known not just as the founder of How the Light Gets In, but also as a philosopher and critic of philosophical realism. And he's responsible, amongst other things, for the theory of closure, described as the first non-realist metaphysics. And he's, of course, currently director of the Institute of Art and Ideas. On my left, we have uh, Dr. Hannah Dawson, lecturer at the New College of the Humanities and author of two books, the most recent of which is Life Lessons from Hobbes. She is also a regular contributor to the media, including the Times Literary Supplement and BBC Radio 3. And on the screen, very kindly joining us all the way from the West Coast, we have Professor John Searle, an American philosopher noted for his seminal work in the philosophy of language and philosophy of mind. Uh, John holds chair in philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley, and his publications include Rationality in Action. And we're very glad that he's joined us down the line all the way from California. Could you please welcome all of our guests? So we have one of the biggest questions in philosophy and indeed beyond philosophy before us today, the question of what is truth and can we analyze its nature and do we need to rethink it? And to make the first case, which I think is going to really have uh, quite a go at the concept of truth, I'm going to ask Hilary Lawson to start us off. The title of this uh, debate is After the End of Truth. And uh, so I'm going to begin not by rehearsing familiar arguments about uh, realism and, and uh, truth. Instead, uh, I am going to take it for granted that realism has failed. And there is no decent uh, theory that's come up of how language might be hooked onto the world or might describe some independent reality and there is no reasonable likelihood of one appearing and instead to focus on what 
do we do about it and what might be the alternative? Now, it seems to me that in holding this view, uh, it's not in any way, in one sense, controversial. After all, the primary, uh, well, not primary, but the perhaps the most influential philosophers of the last hundred years, uh, Wittgenstein and Derrida, both took the same view, that it was not possible to, to describe um, uh, reality in some direct way through language. And Wittgenstein's uh, response to that was to avoid making any overall claim about the nature of the relationship between language and the world at all. And Derrida, in his own way, tried to do the same thing by providing us with a series of descriptions which he then deconstructed uh, one after the other so you don't have or can't enunciate a position that he is taking up. I think that both of these responses to the failure of realism are a mistake. I don't think it is viable just to say um, uh, we can't deal with the problem of how we describe the world and so we're just going to put our heads in the sand. I think that we do have to try and put a theory together. And it seems to me the primary task of philosophy as where we stand now at the beginning of the 21st century is to try and put together a non-realist theory of how it is that even though we cannot say uh, describe uh, objective truth or, or, or reach objective truth, how might we be able to account for the fact that we can intervene effectively and we can get uh, all sorts of things to happen in a very precise and exact way. And in that sense, I think it's the opposite of the Kantian problem. Kant said, we know there is knowledge and the problem is to work out how we can have knowledge. It seems to me that the contemporary predicament is exactly the reverse. We have come to the understanding through the familiar stuff about perspectivalism, cultural relativism, and so forth, we've come to recognition that objective knowledge is not possible. And what we have to do is to work out what sort of theory we might have which can account for uh, how it is that we are able to do all of the remarkable things that we can do um, uh, and intervene in the world. I've had a stab at such an account and you wouldn't be surprised to hear me say, therefore, that I think that this is, uh, it's got some strengths. And I think it helps us um, explain how we might be able to intervene in the world. And in a, in a single sentence, I argue that the world is open. It's not already divided into things and bits, which we come along and name. It's open, and we close the openness of the world. And it is the closing of that openness which creates the particularities and so forth. But... Sometimes I've been misunderstood as somehow claiming that this means that, that we can just make up any old stuff that we want to make up, and I don't think that at all. I think there's lots of constraint on the closures that we can construct. I think that we can create uh, stories and narratives about the world, and we see the ways in which they fail, and we try to respond to those failures by coming up with uh, better accounts. One final thought, therefore, as far as what might be an alternative to truth. Within any individual model or within individual narrative, I think we can refine that, and that has the characteristic. It feels like we're getting to the truth. But when we are choosing between one model and another, when we are choosing whether to see, for example, you know, this as a table or whether we see it as a collection of atoms, that is a question of judgment. And uh, we can't empirically get to the bottom of that and decide between which is the which is the correct one 
what we have to do is decide which is useful for us to be able to intervene. And our combined set of judgments is about wisdom. I'd like to see us shift from being focused on truth to being focused on how to be wise, how to choose those closures which enable to live our lives better and make society better as well. Hilary, thanks very much indeed for that very clear and rousing introduction. I have to say that, you know, from your very first clear premise when you were talking about uh, the failure of realism, I saw one or two heads shake actually in the audience. So I think we're going to def definitely have a debate here today. Before we get to that part, though, I'm going to turn straight to Professor John Searle. And John, I'd ask you if you would share some thoughts with us next. You need to make a clear distinction between two senses of the objective-subjective distinction. There's an epistemic sense where epistemology means having to do with knowledge and an ontological sense where ontology means having to do with existence. Now, <clears throat> the epistemic sense is about claims. Uh, some claims can be known to be true or false independent of our attitudes, uh, the, the law of gravitational attraction, for example. Others depend on our uh, feelings. Uh, Rembrandt was the greatest painter that ever lived. That's the distinction between the epistemically objective and the epistemically subjective. Underlying that distinction is a distinction in modes of existence. And some things like mountains, molecules, and tectonic plates have an existence regardless of what any, anybody thinks. And others like pains and tickles and itches depend on their existence for human and animal feelings. The first class are ontologically objective. The second class is ontologically subjective. Now, the massive confusion in the first speaker was the, was the confusion between supposing that because all claims have an element of ontological subjectivity, language is, after all, a human construction, that there's no such thing as epistemically objective knowledge about a domain which contains elements of ontological subjectivity. You couldn't begin to cope with the world without presupposing some form of realism. We're having this discussion. I have to assume we really are having this discussion, that I'm in California and that you're in the United Kingdom. And th those are truth claims that I'm making. Now, it's true for something to be California or to be the United Kingdom is to be classified in a certain way. And there's an element of ontological subjectivity in those classifications. But to repeat the crucial point, there's nothing in that element of subjectivity that precludes us from having a completely epistemically objective account. Uh, objective truth is uh, certainly possible about a domain which is ontologically subjective or contains ontological subjectivity. So when the pe uh, first speaker said that uh, perspectivalism had uh, refuted realism, uh, that's a massive mistake. Perspectivalism just says all knowledge claims are made from a certain perspective, and realism says there's a reality that we can, there's ontologically speaking, on a, on a reality that we can know about and have make epistemically objective claims about. There's nothing inconsistent between realism of those naive kind and perspectivalism. So what we've got is a situation where not only do we have the possibility of objective truth, we couldn't begin to cope with the world without the presupposition of objective truth. Now let me pick up another point. He said, I think entirely correctly, that, that the world is open. We can classify it any way we like. It's up to us how we classify it. Do we want to call this a collection of molecules or a table? 
The mistake is to think that somehow or other those two descriptions are inconsistent. They're perfectly consistent. It's perfectly consistent to say that it's both a table and a collection of molecules. Notice, both claims presuppose realism. They presuppose that there's a way that the world is that exists independently of our characterization of it, even though the characterizations are essential in order that we should be able to make any statements about how the world is. It is a presupposition of most, not all, intelligible discourse that there is a reality that you're talking about. You call up your the garage to find out if your car is fixed. Uh, you uh, ask your uh, spouse what time uh, she's going to be home uh, for dinner. All of these presuppose an independently existing reality. Now, our characterizations of that reality rely on human subjectivity. But from the fact of the human subjectivity, the characterization, it does not follow that you cannot have an epistemically, epistemically objective set of claims about that reality. The notion of objectivity is the idea that somehow a word might really represent an object. And I'm going to elucidate why I think that's a kind of crazy idea um, by talking about my discipline, which is the discipline of history. So sometimes historians think, um, or historians want to say, that History is a kind of representation, a true representation of the past that, say, a book about the French Revolution or something might be, as it were, a representation of the French Revolution. And it became clear to me that this was a sort of farcical way of thinking about truth um, when my history teacher at school asked everyone in the class to give an account of what had happened that morning in assembly. And we all gave completely different accounts. Someone said, you know, accounted uh, for the number of hymns that were sung and what their numbers were. Someone else talked about the Robert Frost poem that had been read. And it became clear that there were as many truths in that room as there were people. Um, and it became clear then that truth is a kind of plural thing, that it has to be selective, that it has to be interpretative. Um, and even if it were possible to have interviewed everyone in that class, to have, as it were, captured everything that had gone on in the assembly and tried to capture a kind of total history, a total experience, that would never have been commensurate with the peculiar reality of what it means to be in time. There is no way that a representation can be commensurate with the reality. So that's uh, one objection against objective truth. And something else that um, one might say about history in particular is what about facts? Historians love their facts. Isn't there a kind of bedrock of facts that the historian can always rely on? And what I would want to say in response to that is that um, facts are themselves assertions. They are spoken by human beings, by historians. Roland Barthes has a wonderful way of talking about this process where he talks about the historian kind of erasing the eye that goes into every statement that the historian makes. So you might say, you might read in a history book, the civil war broke out on account of religion, but what you should be hearing is, I think that the civil war broke out on account of the wars of religion. Um, and another thing to say about facts is that they are linguistic entities. They are couched in language that is itself infused in culture. So, for example, if you think about the fact that women got the vote in this country in um, uh, 1928, um, 
the notion of what a woman was is something that is highly contingent and has changed over time. So even that, that fact is itself something that's subject um, to contestation and to change. So that's my kind of a, a stab at taking a, um, a stab at um, ob objectivity and why I think it's problematic. But I don't nonetheless want to go all the way down the kind of skeptical postmodern route. I don't want it to be the case that we can say anything. I think that there is a way in which reality, the world, pushes back against what we can say, makes it permissible to say some things and not to say others. And the great um, sort of juggernaut that historians wheel in at this point is the Holocaust. So there is a huge amount of legitimate debate that can be had about the Holocaust, why it happened, the extent to which the German people were complicit in it. But nonetheless, there is um, the fact, there's the fact that a large number of people were murdered in the most extraordinary way. And that is why, for example, it's illegal in Germany to deny the Holocaust. That's why Richard Irving in this um, country David was, Irving. as it were, sorry, <laughs> that's put a, on it's trial. A it's a fact, it's I fear his name is David Irving. That's right, it's a fact Irving. that David Irving, exactly, was put on trial. Um, um, for, denying, for denying the Holocaust and, and the historian Richard Evans came up against him and kind of proved by virtue of historical evidence that this was um, false. And so I think that it's really important to hold on to the truth, not just for the sort of metaphysical reasons that um, Professor Searle has outlined, but also for moral and political reasons. We should not be allowed to rewrite the past um, so just as we shouldn't be allowed to write the Holocaust out of history, so, for example, should we not be allowed as Britons to write out um, empire or slavery as part of our national history? So what is it important um, in the, the current case of um, laying out uh, cases of historic child abuse? These things can't be pushed under the table. They have to be said. And it, truth, the notion of truth, is a fundamental way in which we can hold power accountable. Thank you. The debate, theme one. I think it's high time that we move the debate forward. And Hillary, you've been very patient for a while, but I suspect there's a lot you're going to want to respond to there. Let me put a question to you. And you know, we've been hearing both from John Searle about, in you know, the, the position he's put forward that there are certain different types of truth, the epistemological and the ontological, and that you are perhaps deliberately obscuring the division between them to make your wider point? I mean, is that an accusation that you would say, hands up, fair enough? No, of course, I, I wouldn't accept that. And that's because I think this idea of this ontological truth is a certain sort of fantasy. Um, so uh, I, I think the difficulty is here is how we find a way to have a good conversation which um, when the two of you are entirely when separated when we have by massive chasm, when we when we have so could much, I, could, could I put uh, the question to you in a different way? Because I speak as someone who is not a philosopher. I mean, I'm a historian by academic training. I do spend a lot of time dealing with what Hannah has characterised as facts, as well as interpretation of those facts. But I would follow. Actually, the ri we've spoken about Richard Evans, distinguished historian, in one of his books, In Defence and History. He does come up, and I'm not sure he would quite use this phrasing, but it's a German phrasing, with the Leopold von Ranke classic statement, Vies eigentlich gewesen, things as they really were, while acknowledging, of course, that interpretation of what really was is an important part of 
what the historian does. It suggests to me that that position put forward by a historian who deals with archives, who deals with sources, and who then deals with different types of frameworks, liberal, Marxist, postmodernist, to apply to them, even all of that apparatus is something whose first premises you don't feel happy with accepting. Well, I think the reason that I, I wanted to try and move on when I made my first mm. remarks is because I think that if you take a non-realist position, as I do, um, one of the difficulties is to get across what the consequences of that are, because it is frequently misunderstood. So it's frequently misunderstood as there is no constraint on what you can say. Um, I think uh, John actually picked up and I said, you know, this is a mistake that, that, that I'd made. I, I'm not remotely saying that. The, there is constraint on what we can say in the sense that we can, I if, if we offer uh, narratives or we offer closures, as I would describe them, and they are not effective at intervening in the way we want, we see that as a failure of our account. And because we find ourselves in a complex web of previous closure, often within a particular system, we've got very little room for manoeuvre in terms of what, what, what we might decide or not. But to pick up on the specifics of the Holocaust example, um, I would say... No, it doesn't help saying it was a fact of the matter that there was the Holocaust. It is possible to hold the view that there wasn't, in the sense that you can build a story which, uh, in which uh, the whole thing is a conspiracy, that the, the, uh, you know, the Auschwitz uh, towers are, are fabricated, that the whole world is engaged in some sort of conspiracy to present this and so forth. But if you are consistent within your narrative account, it becomes more and more challenging for you so that you will find it harder and harder to be able to create a consistent account that you can apply to your life and in your circumstances. And the reason, therefore, that we choose as a matter of judgment to think, no, that is wrong, is because it, the consequences for us of doing holding the world like that have all sorts of outcomes which we don't want. And I don't think that coming along and just wanting to get to the end of the matter and just say, well, I'm just going to have the authority of truth here. No, what I say is true, as if I can just wheel on God and say, this is how it is. Uh, I don't think that ends the argument. I don't think it convinces the person who disagrees with you. I don't think any of that. I don't think assertions of truth get you very far. You're just asserting something but about a state of the world which you can't but access. But, 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 but Hillary, producing in this case, and I want to bring John Searle back in in just two seconds, but as a historian, I would not produce an assertion about the Holocaust or about Chinese history or a whole variety of things. I would produce a large pile of archival documents, which I spent time photocopying, and to use another philosophical phrase, refute it thus. Yes, and, and I would say, okay, you've got your story about how to interpret these documents. No, no, I've got a pile of 6,000 yes, documents. You've got a pile of 6,000 documents. The, uh, the documents on their own don't say anything. It's a question of what your narrative about those documents are and how you interpret those documents. And somebody could say, actually, these documents are fake, Rana. They're not really the real ones. They've been interpreted differently. They've been made by other people. I don't trust these documents. They can do all of that. And you're not going to be able to say, no, these documents are just prove it once and for all. You want to, but you won't be able to. Well, now, I think it's high time that we brought John Searle back in from California. John, what do you think about what you've just been hearing? Yes. Well, I think you couldn't possibly make sense of the discussion without presupposing realism. 
Uh, all of these terms, uh, documents, closer, system, consistent, all of those presuppose there's something independent of the actual sounds that come out of your mouth uh, to which they correspond or fail to correspond. A really consistent anti-realist would have to deny that we can say with any kind of epistemic objectivity, there are documents. But of course, we can say that. Now, the funda is, it, it's very hard to put your finger on the fundamental mistake, but I think I can do it. The fundamental <laughs> mistake is to suppose no, no, all claims ahead. are perspectival. All theories are from a point of view. All theories are within some kind of system that, therefore, epistemic objectivity is impossible. It just doesn't follow. It does not follow from the fact that it's a perspectival claim uh, to say, well, I am currently in California and you're currently in the United Kingdom, that somehow or other this isn't objectively true. It's epistemically objectively true. Uh, we can know it for a matter of fact. And, uh, Hillary, I mean, obviously you're, you're shaking your head in, in, in disbelief that's going this way, but what is it about the premise of realism in that sense that seems so to offend you? It isn't that it offended me. I started out my philosophical career thinking I needed to ground language and found some way that it was founded on. And I, pr the more I pursued it, the more I uncovered the, our inability to do so in exactly the same way, and this isn't in any way a parallel, I hasten to add, in exactly the same way that Wittgenstein tried to do in the Tractatus when he started out. He tried to build a realist account of language, and he came to the conclusion that it was impossible to do it. So uh, what I'm saying now is not particularly original. Wittgenstein got there in 1915 or something, and we haven't really progressed from that situation. And the question is, what do we do about recognizing that it's not possible in language to talk about the relationship between language and the world. How do we deal with that? And pre presupposing that there is somehow a, an objective uh, uh, reality which is already capable of somehow description by our language um, uh, is, uh, it, it, it seems to me to be an un unreasonable fantasy. And one of the reasons why we have that fantasy and why it's so persistent is because it looks as if the alternative is not possible. So John's point, which is you have to have this notion of uh, presupposing that there is uh, an objective reality of a certain sort, otherwise um, uh, communication is impossible, I don't think is quite right. I think that communication presupposes that you are trying to say something about an objective reality. That I accept, but I don't think there has to be an objective reality. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Theme two. I just wanted to um, press you, Hilary, on, um, on what distinguishes better and worse ways of closing the world. So if you accept that there are constraints on the ways in which you can close the world, as you say, and that some ways are better than others, what is the criteria for that? Is it not the case that the better ways are the ways it, that hook on better to the world? 
Yes, and I think the answer to that is we have many different ways in which it might be better. Sometimes you might have one criteria for thinking it's better, like it's better for my health, or you might think it's better for my ability to be able to build a theory, or you might have it's better to be able to create to to uh, build my career, or it's better for or it's better for an entertaining conversation. You have lots of different ways in which it might be a more useful closure, and it seems to me children, for all of those parents in the audience, will know perfectly well, are brilliant at choosing just the right sort of linguistic closure to get what they want. <laughs> and it doesn't have much to do with truth out there in the sense of that they just are using language as a tool to get what they want. And we do that. That's what we're doing. We're just using it to get the outcomes uh, that we want. And one of those outcomes is one which is built within the framework of of imagining that there is an objective world and we're refining our descriptions of it. That's just one version of it. And that's a perfectly good narrative to have and I would advocate that in many situations. But I wouldn't advocate the sort of transcendental metaphysical notion that somehow there is an ultimate uh, reality that all of these things are trying to point to. Okay, the mistake, again, to repeat, is to suppose that the option is uh, between a complete subjectivity and something mysteriously described as a metaphysical reality uh, which is transcendental. I don't know what those words mean. All I do know is I'm in California, and for example, I have two thumbs. Uh, there was a discussion about my chin. Uh, that's part of the objective world, but so are the thumbs and a whole lot of other such features. The, uh, the important thing to see, I think, in what both Hillary and Hannah said is perspectivalism is trivially correct. It's trivially true. All utterances are made from a perspective. All classifications uh, reveal a, a, a perspectival choice. The mistake is to suppose that somehow or other objective knowledge becomes impossible. It doesn't. Uh, so we have all kinds of objective claims that were essential for us to even set up this discussion. Uh, we had a lot of uh, discussions about uh, uh, how my computer would be set up in, uh, uh, on my desk and would I be facing the window or facing the wall and all those sorts of things. And all of that, all these, I picked trivial examples here because they all presuppose that there's a way the things are that's independent of our characterizations of them. Now, there's one absolutely mis a crucial misunderstanding of Wittgenstein that I have to correct, and that is Wittgenstein was anxious to show there's no non-linguistic standpoint from which we can survey the relations between language and reality to, uh, to ascertain their adequacy. That's right. That is a very deep point in the philosophical investigations. But that's not a denial of realism in the trivial in the sense in which realism is trivially true. For many of our utterances, there's a way of thing, there's a way that things are that determines whether or not the utterance is true. If I say I now have on a, a red shirt, that's false. I don't have on a red shirt. Again, I deliberately pick trivial examples. So Wittgenstein's deep insight that there's no non-linguistic standpoint from which we can survey the relation between language and reality. To, to ascertain the adequacy of language to reality. That's a correct point. That does not imply a denial of realism in the sense in which realism is trivially true. Hannah Dawson, you had a thought there. Um, well, I just I know we're supposed to carry on um, disagreeing with each other, but I wonder I want to make a, have a go at trying to persuade Hillary um, to to the realist perspective. I have two. <laughs> good luck two with that, my friend. Good luck with that. Yeah. So I have two kind of weak weak forms of realism that I'd be interested um, in your views on. The first is a, is a um, a kind of early modern 17th century view, which is 
um, understood now as causal realism. That's the idea that when we um, perceive the world, we don't perceive it as it is. That's to say we don't perceive it in terms of its atoms and its electrons or whatever. So there's not this perfect mirror between what we know and what is out there. But nonetheless, there's a causal relation. That's to say there are things out there. I'm a thing. Yeah. <laughs> there are things out there that are, um, are causing me to have certain perceptions, certain thoughts. And that if we, if we take that, if you agree with that, then there is a kind of realism that you're holding on to. And the other sort of form of realism that um, I'm very very interested in is something that um, has been developed by the brilliant uh, philosopher Sally Haslinger and she's talked about this idea of critical realism the idea that the world is out there but the way in which we kind of carve it up the features of it that we make salient are absolutely kind of arbitrary and the great example that she uses here is the the way in which we divide the world into the dif into the distinction between men and women and that this is why do why are we so keen to make that the salient feature, the sex of a person as the salient feature on which we make a distinction between them. And um, she talks about in Finland, for example, where they have a very good word for it, which isn't better than it, um, but it refers to person or human. And so people aren't regularly divided into these two camps. So well, what about well that? Well, I have to say, <laughs> Hannah, if I may yeah. come back on that, yes. uh, I, I think the, the Finnish word is hand, is that right? But God, uh, I mean, I'm out of my depth now. But uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have a little Finnish grammar later. But um, Chinese, which is a language I, I know better than Finnish, I will have to uh, confess, has the word ta, which means both he and she. I have to say it has not eliminated gender differences, no. politics or sexism in no. China. No. no, no, clearly that's not going to be enough for the revolution, but um, the thought is it might be a start. Theme three. Well, the talk of revolution makes me want to move the discussion onwards a little bit. And Hillary, I'm going to come back to you with a different question. I mean, I think we've explored the issue of whether or not there can be objective reality and seen the chasm between the speakers. But I want to try and see where we go with this. So the question I have to you is, if we take on board the position that you've put forward, and you have been at pains to say you're not suggesting that anything can be interpreted in any way as being, uh, uh, as being uh, truthful in that sense, what is it that this way of thinking enables us to do that we have not previously been able to do? In other words, why do you think that it's intellectually useful to make that point? Well, I think because, as I said, I think that realism is actually dangerous because it encourages you to imagine that there is an answer and that um, there is uh, a, a way of... An answer to what? Well, indeed. I mean, uh, 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 realism gives the impression that there are answers. And uh, it, it might be that the big answer, you know, I've cracked it, you know, the universe is like this, but it could be a very small answer like, um, you know, this is a thumb. And I think the thing is... But why is it, why is it dangerous? But it, but, it, but, it, but it is, because it isn't just a thumb. It's, it's a collection of molecules. It's, a, it's an example in a conversation. But nobody it's says it's, it's just a thumb. No, it no, can no, be a no, thumb no, as no, much no, as no, but, but, but the Of course, but the idea, the question is what is behind that? If it's all of these other different things, the presuppo presupposition that behind all of these, there is something that, that it, it is is, uh, I think, a constraint on the way that we think about how... So, indeed, all of the conversation comments we've had here, like things, oh, well, John is in California. Oh, these are my thumbs. This is my chin. Those are constraints 
on, on what we might say about what's... So instead of seeing, we could describe all of this in an infinite number of different ways. Would we, would we be free, Hillary, to say, as John has suggested, John is wearing a red shirt, when most of us boring old realists would say he's wearing a white and blue check shirt? Um, within any particular set of closures, we, we, we've grown up, culture has grown up, and it has the, the closures have become embedded. We learn them. We grow, we grow up. When children grow up, they, we correct them if they, if they don't use a word in the way that we want them to use it. And, and within, that, I, within any particular narrative, yes, within any particular frame, there are things which are, would usually be, be treated as right or wrong. I think actually in the limit, even in those situations, you can make a narrative which it isn't the case. So in the current situation, yeah, John's shirt doesn't appear to be red. Uh, and that's within the framework of language we normally use and the way we're operating. The nature of non-realism is not that you are somehow thinking, oh, I can make up any old stuff and say any old thing. But what, what it is saying is that these are like ways of holding the world which enable you to do something. And, and, they can, and just imagining that there is some uh, final uh, constraint stops you thinking in ways which I think are more productive. But... But forgive me, is there anything more to that than, you know, Apple's trademark of think different, which is a slogan rather than a philosophy? Well, wha why do you, why would you, what's implicit in your thought I is that there's some advantage in somehow believing in this metaphysical fantasy of things. That wha why, why do you want to carry this around? I think there are ways in which it is really dangerous. In the, in the history of mankind, I think people are constantly going to war, fighting over things, disagreeing with each other, all of that stuff, because they imagine that they've got it right. Every, every um, terrorist, every uh, person who is sort of determined to fit, tends to think, but I'm right, I've got the truth. And I think this realism is fundamentally dangerous. Well, I would point out that A.J. Balfour was a prime minister of uh, the United Kingdom who wrote a book called In Defense of Philosophic Doubt, but he still managed to crack down pretty hard on Ireland, so it shows that you can have the, uh, the <laughs> two at the same time. Jo John Searle, you've heard, you've, you've heard a statement there from Hillary. Can I, can I bring you back in? Yes, I don't uh, for a moment think uh, that uh, somehow or other we would be liberated by the denial of realism uh, uh, from uh, terrorism. I think that the, uh, the terrorist really has no, uh, uh, no more and no less need of philosophical theory. The point, however, that realism points out, and I think quite correctly, that in general communication is possible because there's a world that we're communicating about and we can say things about that world which are epistemically, objectively true or false. Now, in response to that, it's been said over and over, yes, but you can have alternative descriptions of the world. Quite so. There's nothing inconsistent with realism in the fact that, literally speaking, an infinite number of different interpretations are possible. In fact, I think what realism does is introduce, to put it rather obviously, an element of reality into the discussion. <laughs> most of the things that we're interested in, most of the things that we want to argue about, such as who won the British election, why did they win, was there a holocaust, and so on, all of those contain elements of ontological subjectivity. There's an element of interpretation and the existence of all of those facts. 
But all the same, you can make objectively true or false claims. The Holocaust example is a very good example. Uh, why is it any better than any other? Because it just seems too preposterous, too ridiculous to think that anybody could deny these horrible facts uh, that occurred in, in uh, Central Europe in the middle decades of the 20th century. Now, the, uh, uh, it was, I think, Hillary who said, well, you could construct a narrative in which the Holocaust didn't exist. The problem with that narrative is it's not just that it's too complicated, it's false. It's just false to say the Holocaust didn't exist. And here I want to side with Hannah. Uh, there are uh, all sorts of interpretations are possible, but there are certain object, epistemically objective facts, even within domains that are ontologically subjective. Could I just bring Hannah back in here? I think she wants to respond, then I'll bring back in Hillary. Hannah. Well, I just wanted to respond to um, Hillary's claim about the danger of realism and respond with the kind of counterclaim about the danger, which is sort of John's point as well, the danger of, of non-realism, um, and particularly in the context of, of politics. So, um, so there's a brilliant uh, new book out by someone called Peter Pomerantsev about Putin's Russia, which is called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And it's about how um, Putin and his um, lieutenants have become very kind of proud in a way, it kind of s about self-confessedly talking bollocks um, and using that as a, mean of, a means of kind of social control. There's, you know, it's propaganda that owns itself as propaganda and, and, and we can feel the kind of effects of that. Or even in America, I think there's now a kind of, it's almost um, a, a phrase that's become established, which is post-truth politics. And that's the idea that you don't care if what you, you know that what you're saying might be a lie about your opponent, but you, you um, take it that the effect of your lie is going to be more politically expedient, the, the embarrassment of having to apologize for it. And so we're kind of all on board with post-truth politics. That seems like a really dangerous position in which to find ourselves. Hillary. And I think it, that would be a really dangerous position if that's what non-realism was about. So I think that non-realism doesn't mean that there's no such thing as lying. Lying is about saying something which you don't hold to be true. And you know when you're lying. Uh, because you are saying something which you don't hold to be true. And that's independent of this question about um, whether there are, um, uh, wh whether the reality is in some objective state, there's some independent reality, some objective state. So I don't think the non-realist is going to be, uh, uh, is going to fall to the criticism, well, people can just make up any old stuff because they're just lying. And I wouldn't advocate lying. I think communication relies on the fact that at least most of us don't lie most of the time, and we have to assume that people are not lying in order to get communication to work. But that's a very different thing from um, uh, then uh, presuming as a result of that that we have to be committed to the, this sort of fantasy about what the nature of the ultimate reality is, that it's somehow already divided up out there. John. Okay, I can't resist pointing out the same thing over and over. When you use ultimate reality and already divide it up, those are precisely the claims that are not made by the realist. 
I, I think the world divides up the way we divide it. Uh, we happen to uh, divide the world into certain kinds of categories of plants and animals. We could have a different uh, division. And uh, Hannah cited uh, 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 Sally's work on uh, gender differences. These are good examples of, of uh, categorizations that are in flux, that are, that are fluid at the moment we speak. So the fact that there are alternative categorizations and the fact that we that we don't really have much notion for the notion of an ultimate reality, but we do have a use for the notion of the way things are, and our beliefs we want to correspond to the way things are, and this is what makes lying possible. And I think that uh, Hillary has, in a, in a sense, given the game away when he says, well, we of course, we don't want to allow lying, but you see, lying is... <clears throat> Uh, reprehensible because it is a deliberate attempt to convey what the speaker thinks is false. That is, you cannot make sense out of the notion of saying something you don't believe without the notion of falsity, and you can't make sense of the notion of falsity without the notion of truth, and you can't make sense of either of those without the notion of there's something in virtue which our statements are true or false. And the mistake is to think, well, but, but if you think that, then you're in some metaphysical uh, bag with ultimate reality, whatever that's supposed to be. Or you must think the world comes divided already for us. No, the world doesn't come to divided. We have to divide it. And there is no use for the notion of ultimate realities. I don't have any use for it. But once you have introduced your categories of categorization, it then can, not always, but it can I turn out that there is an objective way that things are, and within the, there's an ontologically objective way that things are, and within that domain, you can now make epistemically objective claims. That seems I don't see how anybody can deny that. That's what realism amounts to. It amounts to a certain kind of humility that many of our claims about reality are subject to a check about how things really are. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.